You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll. He dominated the pop charts like no solo artist had ever done before. And over the course of his career, he had 18 number one songs. But here's the thing. Elvis didn't write any of them. Not Hound Dog, not Jailhouse Rock, not Blue Suede Shoes, and, suspiciously, not even Suspicious Minds. We can't go on together with suspicious There was one time Elvis got a co-writing credit. It was on All Shook Up. He told people that he came up with the title. I'm all shook up. But apparently, the actual songwriter, Otis Blackwell, only gave him the credit so the king would agree to record it. I'm all shook up. But Elvis really wasn't doing anything unusual. Frank Sinatra, Diana Ross, Kenny Rogers, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Tim McGraw, and tons of other superstars didn't write their biggest hits either. Instead, they relied on professional songwriters. Billboard magazine was founded in 1894 and was originally about advertising. But as phonographs, jukeboxes, and radios became more common, they started focusing on music. In 1940, Billboard started tracking the most popular songs in the United States. Since then, there have been over 1,300 number one hit songs, and the majority of them were not written by the performers. For example, the very first number one song was I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra. I know I will never Side note, that voice you hear is actually a young Frank Sinatra. To smile again. Now, you may not have heard of Tommy Dorsey, but in the 1940s, he was one of the biggest names in show business. In total, he had 17 number one hits. Everyone back then knew who Tommy Dorsey was. But almost no one knew the name Ruth Lowe, and she was the one who wrote I'll Never Smile Again. She also wrote the lyrics to another Frank Sinatra hit, Put Your Dreams Away for Another Day. Put your dreams away for another day. Right from the start of recorded music, Singers were paying songwriters to come up with tunes. That's 20,000 Hertz producer Andrew Anderson. Often, these singers didn't actually get to choose which songs they got to sing. Instead, their managers would go to places like the Brill Building in New York City to find songs they thought could be hits for their artists. The Brill Building was where a lot of major music publishing companies were based. Back then, songwriters would actually work in the building, and there were even piano players on standby who could perform songs from sheet music for potential customers. Ruth Lowe would visit the building regularly to share her new songs, and that's where Tommy Dorsey first heard I'll Never Smile Again. And it wasn't just pop singers who were performing other people's songs. The practice was also common in country music, for example, Johnny Cash has hit A Boy Named Sue. was actually written by songwriter and cartoonist Shel Silverstein. One's on the Way by Loretta Lynn was another Silverstein tune. One wants a cookie and one wants a changing and one's on the way. Really, it wasn't until rock and roll came along that more pop singers began mainly recording tracks they wrote themselves. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Buddy Holly all became famous performing their own hits. 
For instance, here's Chuck Berry's hit song, Carol. Those early rock and rollers had a huge influence on the British invasion bands of the 1960s. The Beatles, the Kinks, and the Rolling Stones all covered lots of these rock and roll classics. Here's the Rolling Stones covering that same Chuck Berry song. And here's the Beatles version. Of course, the Beatles would go on to become great songwriters in their own right. Not only did they record their own tunes, but they also wrote for other artists like PJ Proby, Cilla Black, and the Rolling Stones. In fact, the Rolling Stones' first hit song, I Wanna Be Your Man, was written for them by Lennon and McCartney. But despite bands like the Beatles, many songwriters remained in the background. For instance, Hoyt Axton was a singer-songwriter whose solo career never really took off. But Axton did write hit songs for artists like Steppenwolf, Ringo Starr and Three Dog Night. At the same time, there were artists like Elton John, who wrote his own music but didn't write his own lyrics. The words to most of Elton's hits were actually written by his collaborator, Bernie Toppin. Then in the 1980s, there was Tina Turner, who didn't come up with her most famous songs. And that trend continued into the 90s and 2000s, with huge stars like Britney Spears and Ricky Martin almost exclusively recording songs written by other people. While everyone knows the names of the singers, the songwriters often stay in the shadows. So what's in it for them? For one thing, songwriting is a big business. Songwriters make a little bit of money every time one of their songs is purchased, streamed, covered, sampled, played on the radio, or used in a TV show or movie. So as a songwriter, if one of your songs becomes a hit, then it can add up to be a lot of money. But of course, writing just one hit song is hard enough and making a whole career out of it is even harder. What you need to have is a dream in your head that you're going to make it. And you have to have 90% drive and follow through and discipline. My name is Desmond Child and I am a songwriter. Unless you're a music geek, you probably don't recognize his name, but he's actually one of the most successful songwriters of the last 40 years. He's had top 10 hit songs in every decade since the 1970s and written some of the most iconic songs of all time, working with artists from Alice Cooper to Cher to Katy Perry. Here's a quick mashup of some of Desmond's hits. Never leave 
he's had a lot of chart success. But that success didn't come overnight. Desmond grew up in a musical household in Florida. His mother was a Cuban songwriter and poet, and Desmond himself started writing at a young age. The first song I wrote was a song called Birthday Blues, and I wrote it for this girl that I had kind of uh, a crush on. I was 14. She was very sophisticated from a fantastic family of musicians, and I was invited to her birthday party. And I didn't have any money for a gift or anything like that that would suit her. And so I decided to write her a song and sit down at her piano and sing it to her. So I did. And like she looked at me, it was like, wow. And uh, it sort of went like this. Birthday blues, brand new shoes, all the wanting twos, all the yous you'd like to be. After his birthday party performance, Desmond kept writing tunes. Eventually, he dropped out of high school and moved to New York City. There, he started a band called Desmond Child and Rouge. They played in the same scene as bands like Blondie, Alice Cooper, and Chicago, and even performed on Saturday Night Live. Ladies and gentlemen, Desmond Child and Rouge. Through that band, Desmond made a connection that would lead to his first big break as a songwriter. Desmond Chalon Rouge was playing a place called Trax. Paul Stanley came to see us from Kiss, and we made friends, and he said, hey, let's try writing a song together. I said, oh, well, you know, um, if I do that, you'd have to co-write a song with me for our album. And we co-wrote a song called The Fight. But it was the Kiss song that Desmond and Paul wrote together that would change music history. Paul Stanley was really my first professional co-write session. Paul and I sat at a big grand piano. We took the cover off of it and we wrote, I Was Made For Loving You. I Was Made For Loving You was a pretty big hit in the United States and an even bigger hit abroad. But more importantly, it was one of the first times that hard rock and disco had been brought together in the same song. So that four on the floor was, I didn't think of it as disco. I thought of it as like a dance beat or or just rocking out, you know, just four on the floor. Four on the floor is a drum pattern where the bass drum is played on every beat. It's used all the time in dance music. But it's less common in rock drumming. A traditional rock drum beat sounds like this. with the kick drum on the first and third beat of every bar. When you add the extra bass drum hits, it sounds like this. Then add in some more hi-hats. And you've got yourself a disco rock crossover. As you can see, We were visionaries. Because from that moment on, dance beats and rock guitars were married forever. But despite the song's success, one particular band member has never been a big fan. Gene hated the song. Apparently, Gene Simmons never liked having to sing the falsetto melody in I Was Made For Loving You. Here he is in an interview with OK Magazine. Okay, what's my part? 
You're killing me. Really? I'm going to sing like my grandmother. I hate playing that song today. Gene may not like it, but he does still play it, and not just at concerts. There's a scene in the 2016 rom-com Why Him, where Kiss shows up, writer James Franco proposes to his girlfriend. I know how much you love their music, so... What? And there's Gene Simmons in his makeup playing the song I Was Made For Loving You like happy as can be. I guess the check was really big. (laughs) After that song became a hit, Desmond got all kinds of new opportunities, working with Cher, Bon Jovi, Kelly Clarkson, and many others. But of course, Desmond isn't the only person writing hits for famous artists. Over in the world of hip-hop, there's one songwriter who's worked with everyone from Snoop Dogg to Nicki Minaj to Travis Scott to Puff Daddy. That's all coming up after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Congratulations to Matt Hyman for getting last episode's mystery sound right. That's a snippet of a hidden Rolling Stones track called Cosmic Christmas. The song is a warped version of We Wish You a Merry Christmas from the Stones album Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Cosmic Christmas doesn't appear on the album's track listing, but it plays at the very end of side one. And here's this episode's mystery sound. If that rings any bells, tell us what it is by visiting the web address mystery.20k.org. If you guess it right, you'll be entered to win a super soft 20,000 Hertz t-shirt in your choice of either gray or blue. NetSuite has simple solutions for complicated business problems. For example, let's say you open a bakery. Before long, your hotcakes are selling like, well, hotcakes. But you keep running out of ingredients. No problem, because not only can NetSuite automate your purchasing so you're never out of stock, but it can also check that your staff have the right training to make those hotcakes to perfection. NetSuite can even handle online orders so your hotcakes can really take off. Having one system handling all of this saves both time and money. And if there's two things we all want more of, it's time and money. Okay, so three things if you include hotcakes. That's probably why more than 37,000 businesses have already signed up for NetSuite by Oracle. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash 20k now to take advantage of this offer. That's netsuite.com slash 20k. netsuite.com slash 20k. (laughs) 
We all know the names of the pop stars who perform our favorite songs, but the people who write those songs are often only known by music industry insiders. Desmond Child is that kind of songwriter. His first big hit was the Kiss song, I Was Made For Loving You. And because of that collaboration, he was put in touch with a young up-and-coming artist. It was Paul, of course, who gave my number to John Bon Jovi. Desmond had been brought in to help John Bon Jovi and his guitarist, Richie Sambora, write tracks for the 1986 album, Slippery When Wet. When Desmond arrived at the studio, he brought along an idea for a song title. A title that I had literally in a little piece of paper in my back pocket. That piece of paper read, You Give Love a Bad Name. As soon as I said the title, John looked at me and he gave me that million, now billion dollar smile. Like, it's all teeth. And... It was like, wow, he's shown his light on me. That's a real star. That process, starting with the title, is how Desmond almost always works. It's always best to start with a strong title. So I always come in with a couple of titles, like I did with You Give Love a Bad Name, and it just ignited the whole thing. Then everything is set up to pay off that title. But to set up that title, they actually took a line from one of Bon Jovi's earlier songs. He had a song called Shot Through the Heart that he had written, and it had been on a previous album, I think their first album. Shot through the heart, it's all part of the game that we call love. For the melody, Desmond went back to a song he had written for Bonnie Tyler. Desmond was convinced the song would have been a hit if only the label had done a better job of promoting it. There was just something about that melody. With that, all of the pieces were in place. John looked at Desmond. And he said, shot through the heart and you're to blame. And then the three of us shouted out, you give love a bad name. That was our first three-way high-five, and I never looked back. Desmond also co-wrote Living on a Prayer from the same album. As well as being commercially successful, Desmond's work with Bon Jovi also brought a new rhythmic sensibility to heavy rock music. It was revolutionary, and... That changed the course of rock and pop music forever. Because if you listen to the bass on those two songs, it's really an R&B Motown bass. When I was writing You Give Love a Bad Name with them, I was on a keyboard and I was playing sort of like a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. It sort of like was like Billie Jean, like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And Richie said, dude, that's like Michael Jackson stuff. I said, play it on guitar, but chug it like tight. So he started playing chun 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 chun. Again, the big smile from John. And and that was like a kind of soul element that came to hard rock music that really hadn't been there before. Of course, not every songwriter gets personally invited into the studio by a rock star. More often, they'll record a demo version of their song and then have their agent try and sell it to various producers and artist managers. 
For example, the Britney Spears song Toxic was written by English singer-songwriter Kathy Dennis. Here's her demo version, which is already very close to the final product. She wrote it with Janet Jackson in mind, but Janet's team turned it down. Then she tried to sell it to Australian pop singer Kylie Minogue, who also wasn't interested. Finally, it ended up being taken by Britney. Another good example would be the song Manic Monday, which was actually written by Prince. Here's the original demo version. Next, he recorded a version with a group he was managing called Apollonia 6. But Prince wasn't happy with the result, and he decided not to put it on the album. In the end, he sent the song to the Bangles, and it became a huge hit for them. There are tons more of these demos out there, but they usually never get released to the public. So that's how the demo model works. But other times, a producer or record label will reach out to a songwriter when they think they'd be a good fit for a particular project. And that's how Glenda Proby, known by her stage name Jizzle, usually works. My name is Jizzle. I'm a songwriter, a Grammy Award winning, uh, by the grace of God. As for her stage name, originally she was known as Lady G, but then someone at a record label told her... You should think about changing your name, it's like really close to Lady Gaga. Luckily, she already had an alternative name. Being from LA, and you know Snoop Dogg, he's like the originator of the izzle, the drizzle, the everything. Big Snoop Dogg coming at you live from Doggy Fizzle, tell a fizzle. So like, we talked like that. So I have a friend named Rance, he would always just be like, Lady Jizzle, Jizzle, Jizzle. And I was like... I like that. Jizzle originally started out as a solo performer. Had my first record deal offers at like 16, 17, and I ended up passing on them just because I didn't like the structure of the deals and where we landed. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I guess I'll, I'll go to college. But while she was still in school, a local Los Angeles producer asked her if she'd help out on a songwriting session. The thought never even crossed my mind, but they were willing to pay me and let me be in the studio. And so I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. That first session led to lots of opportunities. Name a hip-hop artist from the last 10 years, and chances are she's worked with them. I started under the tutelage of the legendary Teddy Riley. I went on to work with Snoop, Travis Scott, Nicki Minaj, Ty Dolla Sign, Puff Daddy, Chris Brown, Kid Inc., Trey Songs, uh, many, many more, I don't know. <laughs> Usually, Jizzle writes hooks or verses that other artists perform, but occasionally, she still performs a verse of her own. For instance, here she is on the Puff Daddy track, Harlem. Working with Puff um, on anything, you know, you have to bring your A-game. He's like, yeah, I like that. That was dope. You should try it again. <laughs> like... 
When artists reach out to Jizzle, it's usually because they're looking for a fresh perspective. I always say, like, you can't write a new song. Every, every song has been written about every subject under the sun. But what you can do is write it from a different perspective. And so since the beginning of my songwriting career, I just always wanted to come from a different angle and perspective than, than you would normally hear. For example, the producer Ty Dollar Sign brought her in to help with a love song for rapper Trey songs that he wasn't sure how to finish. We're in the studio and Ty, you know, he did all the melodies and stuff and then we wrote in the words, but he's like, you know, singing some melody in the hook and, and he's like, well, what's up? What are you thinking? And I was like, I, I don't know, man. I just keep hearing, I, I fumbled your heart. And to me, it sounded dumb when I said it, you know? <laughs> and he's like, oh no, that's hard, that's hard. And then when he sung it, you know, he has the ability to sing anything and make it sound dope. And then, like, Trey just took it to the next level, uh, you know, when he cut his vocals. I'm bad news. I your heart. And there was a similar situation with Snoop Dogg. Back in 2008, he was looking for writers with a new and original voice for his album Ego Tripping. So producer Teddy Riley put Snoop in touch with Jizzle. He's like, hey, do you want to work on this Snoop Dogg album? And I'm like, what? Yeah, like, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, Snoop Dogg's going to let me write for him? Like, you know? And when I'm, I'm young, I'm a girl. Like, this is never heard of. There's no, like, young girls writing for grown men, you know? Dizzle ended up writing parts for several songs on that album, including the verses for Gangster Like Me. So little mama, what's happening? Let me know if you're trying to get it cracking. Wanna chill when you're down for the smash? This American gangster, Mr. Blue Match. And that was like the first time um, I heard my words wrapped verbatim, if that makes sense. Well, not like the very first time, but by Snoop Dogg. You know what I mean? So I was like, I was like, oh man, this is trippy. In hip-hop, most songs are collaborations between the producers and several writers who work on the verses and the melodic hooks. For instance, on Puff Daddy's You Could Be My Lover, Jizzle wrote and performed one of the verses and also came up with the hook. I think with a hook, it's a little harder because it's really the most impactful part of the song. The rapper in me loves the verse, right? Because <laughs> I think that's where you get the time to be able to tell your story and just kind of show off your skill. But the hook is what's going to bring the average listener in and, you know, the masses. It's definitely about capturing that magic with the hook. And then once you got the hook, it's like, oh, okay, woo, I could breathe on these verses. You know what I mean? Like I could take my time now. Jizzle says that to write a good hook, you have to think about your audience and what they want to hear. And the same thing applies to writing a catchy chorus. For instance, if a song is aimed at people who speak a different language, then it makes sense to include some lyrics in that language. That's what Desmond did in the late 90s, when he wrote the song that would become one of the biggest hits of his career. It all started when a friend recommended one of the actors on General Hospital. And she kept saying, there's a guy on that show, he can sing, you should work with him. He's got it. The actor she was talking about was an up-and-coming artist by the name of Ricky Martin. On General Hospital, Martin played a character named Miguel, who often got a chance to sing. Do you believe that love can heal a broken dream? And faith can move a mountain till it melts into the sea? So I had my manager call up the label 
and see what was going on with him. And it just so happened that they were thinking of doing a crossover, Latin crossover record. As a Cuban-American, Desmond is fluent in Spanish, but a Spanish pop song wasn't quite what the label had in mind. Right away, the manager was saying, write a song in Spanglish. And so I spent days trying to come up with the title. And I kept thinking, wow, what are Spanish words that just the average American would understand? And bingo, I thought about El Pollo Loco. El Pollo Loco. Taste the fire. And so El Pollo Loco, La Vida Loca, living, which is in English, La Vida Loca. La Vida Loca is the only Spanish lyric in that song. Everything else is in English. But when I presented the song, the label said, well, can you write it now in English? I said, it is in English. Well, no one's going to understand La Vida Loca. I said, they will. Give them a chance. So when the ad came out for the single, like almost bigger than the title, underneath it, it said, living the crazy life. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean... <laughs> Upside, inside out. She's living the crazy life. She'll push and pull you down. Living the crazy life. Living La Vida Loca, the real version, was a number one hit in the US for five consecutive weeks. It also kicked off what became known as the Latin pop explosion, with artists like Shakira, J-Lo, and Enrique Iglesias all having big hits not long after. In fact, it got so big, they had to create Latin Grammys to accommodate all the Latin artists that started to emerge. And the Latin Grammy goes to... Shakira! Successful songwriters somehow managed to use the sounds and the trends and the ideas that are swirling around us and distill them into something that resonates with millions of people. And when a song really speaks to you, it becomes something more than just a catchy melody. Our favorite songs are like signposts for the most important moments in our lives. I think that songwriters and the songs that they write, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the news. It's, it's like CNN, you know, musically. It's always an indication of the times, you know. Uh, it's how we go back and, and reflect on how we've grown throughout these eras. So that's why it's important for songwriters and artists and producers to make these records that resonate because it speaks to a lot of people's experience and understandings and feelings that they felt but weren't able to express. Music is very healing and can really help a person reflect on their own life. We need it. When we hear a singer that sings with emotion, it touches our heart. We relate to it. And then that becomes our story. We live in a very divided world these days. And there's people on one side, there's people on the other. But guess what? They all show up to Bon Jovi. They all put their fists in the air and they all scream out living on a prayer. So music has a way of uniting people. And music has a way of getting us in touch with our humanity. And that's the thing that will help keep us from destroying ourselves. So I think music is a component to saving the world. 
20,000 Hertz is hosted by me, Dallas Taylor, and produced out of the sound design studios of DeFacto Sound. Treat your ears to some tasty sonic snacks by following DeFacto Sound on Instagram. This episode was written and reported by Andrew Anderson. It was story edited by Casey Emerling. With help from Sam Reinbold. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Thanks to our guests, Desmond Child and Jizzle. To hear the extended cut of this episode, sign up to become a 20,000 Hertz contributor at 20k.org slash donate. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. And once you sign up, you'll instantly get access to our premium feed, 20,000 Hertz Plus, that you can listen to right here in your podcast player. Over there, you can hear a version of this episode that includes a really fun four-minute story that we ended up having to cut for time. Not only that, you'll get the entire 20,000 Hertz catalog plus all future episodes completely ad-free. To sign up, go to 20k.org slash donate or click the link in the show to Description. Thanks for listening. 